Welcome everyone to episode 50 of the Brandon Adams podcast. I have with me Eric Olson. Eric responded to a tweet I put out yesterday where I was interested in learning about the frontiers of machine learning, specifically machine learning as applied to social sciences. Eric is a Northwestern graduate. He played football there with his co-founder, Christian Salem. He graduated in 2017 with a master's of predictive analytics. He then uh, worked at DraftKings for several years before uh, starting up Consensus. Eric, I'm wondering if you could give us a uh, brief background on your interest in machine learning and on Consensus. Yeah, thank, thanks for the intro. Um, so yeah, I guess to start to give just like a, a quick top line on what Consensus is, uh, is we are a new search engine that allows you to type in plain English questions uh, and be returned insights and answers directly from scientific literature. Uh, so basically, instead of going to Google and saying, hey, is red wine actually good for my heart and getting a bunch of editorialized articles, uh, we actually will find the studies that have looked to answer that question and try to pull out the answers for you to make it a easy to use consumable experience. Um, and yeah, the, my, my background, like you said, I, I got my master's in predictive analytics from Northwestern. So that's more traditional, just like statistics, data science work. Uh, and that led me to a career at DraftKings where I worked in the analytics department. Uh, my role there was uh, my, the most interesting project, I guess I, I should say, is uh, I worked on some player profiling initiatives where uh, you take in user bet data and you try to build machine learning models that uh, understand the habits and the skill propensity of certain users. Uh, so that's really where I gained some skills and got really interested in giant machine learning systems. Um, none of this was around NLP, uh, natural language processing, uh, which is what we do at Consensus, but it still is kind of under this giant uh, bubble of big machine learning systems that take in inputs and try to predict outputs. So a lot of listeners of this podcast will not have a strong background in machine learning. If you could just start from the beginning and explain the difference between artificial intelligence and machine learning. Yeah, happy to. So, uh, you know, I, I don't want to start and say like all these definitions are like pretty arbitrary for the most part. So like nobody should be thinking like, oh, I'm wrong if I say something is machine learning and artificial intelligence versus one or the other, because generally speaking, artificial all artificial intelligence is machine learning. It's machines that exhibit intelligence like humans. So it's machines learning to do things. Uh, the main difference I think you'd, you'd like hear people talking about is uh, machine learning would veer more towards like traditional giant statistical, statistical modeling and artificial intelligence would be slightly more complex tasks uh, that may require multiple steps or may have outputs that resemble things that humans would do. But it's you know square rectangle kind of kind of deal here. So when you're sort of playing it safe, machine learning is is a good way. Yeah, good terminology. It's like all artificial intelligence is machine learning at its core. Not everything you'd call machine learning is necessarily uh, artificial intelligence. So you know the the square rectangle uh, dilemma. And can you explain what GPT three is, and also what natural language processing is, generally speaking? Yeah, uh, I'll try to keep it as high level as possible. Um, so I'll start with natural language processing because GPT-3 is within the field of natural language processing. And like just super simply, natural language processing, you'll hear people refer to it as NLP, um, is just the, the field of artificial intelligence that is uh, about understanding, analyzing, and generating text. So it's machines trying to understand text and then do a variety of different tasks with that understanding. Uh, then to zoom in on GPT-3, so GPT-3 is this giant large language model, as they're called, uh, that's been put out by an organization called OpenAI. Uh, GPT-3 stands for Generative Pre-trained Transformer, and it's the third iteration, so you get GPT-3. People, people in this space love their, their acronyms. Every model and innovation is basically just a, an acronym of some sort. Uh, and basically what it is, is it is this 
So large language models are this new form of NLP models that are trained on giant corpuses of text so that they have a base layer understanding of how human text operates. So I'll go a little bit deeper because I think this is, this is fairly understandable regardless of your expertise level, but basically the way that they understand text, well, first there's this thing called embeddings, which basically take text and turn them into numerical representations of the text, which then allow machines to understand and process them. So that's like the first thing you kind of have to understand of how this all works but then how it works more like mechanically is GPT-3 is shown billions and billions of examples of text. So I believe it is trained on basically just like articles on the internet. It's trained on Wikipedia. There's another organization called Common Crawl that basically crawls all pages, like articles and pages across the internet. And then what they do is they mask words. So they blind certain words in these articles and they basically teach GPT-3 to say, all right, here's a word missing. Here's what comes before it. Here come, here's what comes after it. Predict what that word is. And you show it a bunch of examples of what that word is. And then you have it try to predict that. And then over time, it learns uh, where what word is likely to go here, which then informs uh, you know, how to understand the context around things and how to uh, then potentially generate text in the future. That makes sense? Yes. So, so it's operating on on feedback essentially, but the feedback is kind of algorithmic, whether it, instead of a human saying, all right, you got it right. They're able to see the actual examples. And yeah. I mean, that's right. how all right, machine learning models are trained, right? You show it examples of things uh, and then you, you test it by blinding it. Uh, so it, it, it has shown examples of text and then it's, it's what it is trained on to try to be able to do is put text in where there's text missing. So this allows it to have a robust understanding of all of the text around it and trying to understand, you know, the context of language and what makes uh, a word likely to be put in place, uh, place somewhere. Now, GPT-3 is natural language processing that is working on text. Yes. Um, if you could explain to me intuitively uh, what the difference is between text and voice. And let me explain why I'm asking this, because when I play around with your uh, consensus search engine, it's very, very impressive. It It is giving me search results super quickly, and it's exactly what I'm looking for. Um, however, my eight-year-old son is obsessed with Alexa, loves to ask Alexa questions. And our life is better because Alexa does a so-so job of answering these questions. But yeah. to be honest, I'm shocked that Alexa is not better. Um, so what what is lost there? Is voice so much more complicated than text? I, I want to first say like, I, I'm by no means an expert on, on voice stuff. My understanding of it is that it is basically exactly the same. It just has the step of trying to understand the voice and then translate that to text. So basically they take what you say and they try to turn it to text and then it just is NLP going on. Uh, and yeah, Alexa is basically trying to find answers like across the internet, right? Uh, so a little bit different than what you'd be doing at Consensus where the only source material is peer reviewed literature. I'm also interested in open AI and GPT-3, why did they make this publicly available? Um, maybe you could explain about open AI, the organization where they just open source from the start. Yeah, so again, I, I do not know all of the ins and outs, so I would encourage anybody to, to look up things on open AI on their own. Uh, I, I believe that they are a, they are a, a capped for-profit company and I believe they started as a nonprofit who just was like mission to you know, accelerate the development of uh, humane AI models. Uh, and they have since pivoted to for-profit, but they have like a cap on their profits to try to keep their incentives more in line. Um, and it is, GPT-3 is freely available if all you're doing it is to play around with it. Uh, when you start to be asking it to do big tax, tasks over lots of texts, that's where the pricing comes in. So it's priced per token of text that you give it. 
uh, above a thousand tokens. So like if you were to use GPT-3 in a, a production setting as a company over large uh, bits of text data, it would cost you quite a bit of money actually. Got it. They so, have various like playgrounds that anybody can go into and type in a question and it will generate you an answer. So it is, it's a for-profit capped for-profit and nope. they're sort of on the freemium model with GPT-3 and they might possibly yeah. have some hidden versions of like GPT-4 and GPT-5 or something that they're selling or something like this. Um, and companies like Consensus are having to pay some money, presumably. Yeah. Uh, so I can get into the technology we use, but yeah, the, the, the probably the, the, the application I've seen it the most, there, there's plenty of other applications, but the, the application I've seen it the most being used for in companies is for copywriting generation. So it's really, really good at text generation. And basically what these companies do is they have little, uh, they have products where you can type in like a prompt and like give it some criteria. Like I want to write a marketing slogan for an advertisement about X with Y tone and GPT-3 will generate you a bunch of marketing copy. Uh, and there's two big companies that do that, Jasper AI and Copy AI. Uh, and presumably they would pay open AI, they would pay open AI quite a bit to be able to use GPT-3 uh, so frequently and across so much text. Now, in the search engine at Consensus, and maybe you could give us a brief overview of Consensus, what parts are sort of off the shelf, if you will, and which parts are ones that are going to have to be fully proprietary capabilities coming from uh, consensus? Great question. Uh, so yeah, to give you like a super high level understanding, and this also will um, somewhat explain why we can do what we do so fast, is basically like, you know, you have these hundreds of millions of docu scientific documents that we have access to. So many types in the question, and our goal is to, you know, get them insights from papers uh, that are relevant to their question. Uh, but we have hundreds of millions of things to do. So if we took it and we ran, uh, you know, large language models over all of that at once in a search, it would take forever and it would cost us so, so, so much. So basically what you do is you build like a funnel to get you to a likely subset of relevant documents that then you can do some really cool analysis on. So that first part of the wide part of the funnel is pretty out of the box uh, search engine capabilities, where you basically just take in the question, you take the keywords of the question, and you try to say, all right, here's a thousand papers that may have answers to this question. Then you do a slightly more advanced version where you do some deeper NLP on that subset, and you shrink it down even more to say, now here's a hundred papers that are really probably have some answers to this question. And then over that smaller subset, uh, you, we run what we call claim extraction where we go through the paper and we try to pull out when authors are stating their claims based on the evidence of the experiment. And we pull those out and then we re-rank them based on how likely they are to be answering the user's question. So it's kind of this funnel where the top part of it is actually pretty simple, you know, keywording search that can be done in like, you know, 0 0.01 seconds. And it's just like an out of the box solution. And then as the space narrows, it becomes more advanced machine learning and it becomes more fine tuned meaning that it's proprietary stuff that we had to feed the model to teach it how to do these tasks. So models like GPT-3, um, you know, they come, like I, I talked about how it was roughly how it was trained to understand language, but then how it becomes a practical application is you do what's called fine tuning. And you basically take this base layer of understanding that GPT-3 has uh, from learning about the entire internet basically. Uh, and then you teach it how to do a specific task with custom additional training data. Does that make sense? Yeah, so so basically the problem that Consensus is trying to solve is that all of these 0.01 seconds matter and you're trying to make it as fast as possible. Make, make it so that you're, um, it's not having to comb all of the, Right. hundreds of millions of Give days it a smaller years. space to run the real advanced stuff over so that when the user uh has a search it's getting an answer in seconds exactly 
Uh, and yeah, you know, the point zero one seconds, I'm pulling that number out of thin air, but it's some very, very tiny uh, amount of runtime that's required when you're doing pretty basic like keyword searching. Got it. And uh, just so listeners understand, how fast are machines reading? Like if they're looking for one thing in a in a text, like how fast are they reading? Like if you gave if you gave uh, extraneous text that it's never seen before, and you're saying digest these ten million pages, like how long is it taking? Um. I don't have, there's no like one way to answer that question. And I, okay. I don't, even, even the certain ways, I don't really have like a great answer for it. Um, so when you say giving it 10 billion thing, like it depends on what we're talking about. So like there's the giving it information in terms of doing the fine tuning yourself, where you're giving it a bunch of examples of the task you want it to do. So to use the, the copywriting example, presumably what they've done is they get a bunch of marketing copywriters to write marketing copy. And then they have what the inputs rep are represented for that marketing copy. So it says uh, Facebook ad with a friendly tone for why product is the input. And then the output is marketing copy, right? It's like with those inputs, you, you generate marketing copy. And so what those companies presumably did is they had a bunch of people uh, make examples of that with those inputs and those outputs. And then you give that all to GPT-3 and then it learns how to do that task with its base layer of understanding of the internet. And that can take, I don't have numbers, it all depends on how big it is, but those training, those like fine tuning runs can take hours uh, where it's running through all these different iterations of how to best optimize it. Uh, and then once you have that fine tuned model, the input to output can be extremely fast. Yeah. Does that make sense? So then in practice, when that now new fine-tuned model exists and somebody says Facebook ad, friendly tone, it generates it in like five seconds. Uh, but all yeah. it's ingesting is just the text of the prompts you're giving it, but it's learned on you know thousands of prompts and then examples of outputs. And learned even before that on the whole internet. Yeah. Now let's use an example. Okay, you were an undergrad at Northwestern. Okay. Um say you were a highly cynical student that wanted an AI engine to write the papers and say that the teacher said, you're just, you're just writing papers on <clears throat> this volume of reading material that I'm going to give you. It doesn't, you don't have to write on things we talk about in class or whatever. Um, is, is it at a state is this natural language processing at a state where um, it's relatively easy to train the the AI given uh, giving these inputs and output comparisons? Like, yeah, so that, seeing that's a bunch the of papers, um, seeing a bunch of papers that have been written and got A's or whatever, I guess, is a necessary step. But if if they have that, uh, are they able to write all your term papers as an undergrad? Yeah, the, the given step that you said there is the important piece. So like in practice, it almost would never be worth your time because presumably you'd have to create the data set of A papers, of papers for this class, you know, papers around that need to be in a similar structure that have done really well. You need to give it, you know, hundreds or thousands of examples of that. So like, as that is the prerequisite, like you'd have to write those papers to then teach it how to do it. Now, if you could find papers across the internet that, uh, are written in a certain way that you think is going to be similar to your to your class, and if you think they're high quality, presumably you could build that system. Uh, you know, it, it's it's interesting. The again, I gave the example of GPT three companies that are content creators uh, and they're creating marketing copy, and I'm sure you've seen all over Twitter the, the Dolly example, which is uh, an image generator that uses GPT three to take in the prompts uh, and. You know, if you remember like 10 years ago or 15 years ago when people were hypothesizing about AI, uh, the thing that people always like, oh, what they're going to come last for, for humans is like content generation and like art and things like that. But uh, in reality, that prediction was actually completely wrong. And it's been the exact opposite. And where we're seeing it show up first in applications is generating art and generating content and writing things, writing papers and marketing copy. And I think the reason is, is because uh, there are less stakes for those outputs and there 
are, they're not necessarily like right and wrong answers, right? Like art can't be wrong. So it doesn't really matter what it generates when you say, hey, Dolly, uh, write me or generate, you know, uh, a big bald guy standing in a, a second bedroom that he's turned into an office. And Dolly will generate things kind of like that, but it doesn't really matter what it outputs, right? It's just learning how to do it and, and spitting it out and people think it's cool. Uh, and then when you think about your example of writing papers, it's kind of somewhere in between, right? Like there's no wrong way to write a paper, but if it's being graded on its quality, uh, the less likely right now it is the GPT-3 or other large language models will be able to do that like as well as a human, but it does you know, really well with these things that are purely subjective to start. Does that make sense? Right. And, and the probability is that they would do sort of one thing over the course of the paper that would give it up, if you will, as yeah. not human, like something egregious. If you spend enough time with these tools, like I feel like I have like a sense, I, I could predict when something was written by AI or not. I'm sure I'll be totally proven wrong in like, you know, another year from now and there's more innovation, but uh, we did like a press release recently and I saw some other PR like website like reposted it. And I was reading this, I was like, this just feels like this is written not by a human. And I found out that it's an AI PR website that takes a press release and rewrites it as AI. And I was able to like tell that it was just by reading it. And it's just like small things of things that typically humans wouldn't exactly, you know, wouldn't their language would be like a little bit different, but it's pretty darn close. Yeah. Now, um, I was sort of jokingly saying that, that the GPT-4, GPT-5 must exist somewhere um, but generally speaking, there must be some places where the most advanced machine learning AI capabilities exist that are not currently seen. So I guess some places that come to mind would be sort of Twitter and Facebook with internally within those companies. And then you might think like within the, the military intelligence complex, there might be presumably even the best possible technology. I don't know who would be better, Facebook or the military. Hmm. And then and then also um, in finance, I would imagine that there are some, some hedge funds that have been investing in this capability for years and probably keep it quiet somehow. Um, where do you think like the most advanced capability exists? That is a, it's a great question. And let's say specifically the capability for na natural language processing, where you're able to um, basically very, very quickly take a large amount of text and extract the meaning from it. Uh, it's going to be a boring answer. Okay. But the default answer has to still be Google. Because uh, their core product is, you know, a, a natural language processing product. And it's been that way for a while. And, uh, it's, you know, incredible at suggesting questions and they do some uh, extraction and identification of answers to your questions within within articles. Like when you get that featured snippet, like that's fairly similar to what we do at Consensus, just over a different source material. And in some ways, uh, what they are doing is, is harder because their corpus is the internet. Our corpus is in this kind of sandbox of scientific literature. Uh, so I think the default answer has to be a tech company like Google. I know nothing about potential NLP capabilities of government organizations. Uh, not, there isn't an application that like jumps off the page to me where like, oh, I think it's probably there. Um, so like my, my instant reaction probably has to be with some of these advanced tech companies. Makes sense. Um, okay. I have a question specific to consensus. Okay. Um, just so listeners understand, Consensus is a search engine that you can ask basically anything. You can ask anything in the social sciences or in the sciences and then get answers, uh, answers from uh, research. Yep. And as part of your answer, maybe you can explain how you rank these things, how you weight things such as publication date, number of citations, all yeah. these sorts of things. Um, so you could ask a question like, 
what is the relationship between budget deficits and inflation? And yeah. they will give you stats. Or you could ask um, any health question or science question. Um, my big my big question for you is, first of all, how does Google get better over time? Because I'm not sure people generally understand that. And second of all, how does consensus get better over time? As people are asking the same question hundreds of times with slight variations, how is it getting better over time? Okay, there's a lot there. Uh, so first off, to just like address your, your points about consensus, yeah, you can ask anything, but uh, if you don't ask, ask about a topic that has likely been studied by researchers, you're not likely to get back good results. So like, it's not meant to be used to type in like, how many people live in Europe? Like that's just a, a widely known fact that some database has. That's not something that there's going to be a peer-reviewed paper on, right? It's much more for, yeah, does X cause Y? Uh, does this supplement help me sleep? What are the effects of running on damage to my knees? Uh, things like that. Um, to then talk about how these systems get better. Um, so for for Google, you know, the, 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 what, the thing they're famous for is their page rank algorithm. So that's how they sort results is like, given a certain threshold of relevance, they show you the articles that have been clicked on the most. Like that was their big innovation was basically using their user behavior to then power how the results show up. So theoretically that's how Google gets better over time is more people continue to use it. They learn what are the, the best articles that people keep clicking on and those will over time continue to be prioritized more and more. Uh, and then obviously there's this whole other world of just like feature development, which is kind of outside of the core search algorithm, like adding the, uh, you know, the autocorrect and the suggested questions. Those are just like features on top of that core product. Um, in consensus's uh, world, the way that we, so we do not use something like PageRank because we think that's pretty antithetical to what we're trying to do. As Google's is, you know, Google is an advertising based company. Uh, so their North Star metric is engagement. The more eyeballs on their pages, the more time you spend in Google, the more ad space they have to sell and the more money they make. So that means that's why they prioritize popularity and not reputability, right? There, you know, and there's a reason why if I type something into Google and you type something into Google, our results will not be the same because they're trying to predict what is most likely to be clicked on and most likely to drive engagement. Uh, and we think when you're trying to find answers about important subjects like things in science, that you can't be using an engine that is set up that way as the North Star metric as engagement. You need to have the same results for all users and everything needs to be about trying to give you the best information possible. Uh, so right now, we basically, the way that it happened, I talked about that funnel, to get us to the top 25, which are then reordered purely based on how well they answer the question, we have some weightings on citation count, publication date, and then we also have a weight of what we call like finding quality or claim quality, which is basically the output of the model that predicts where the claims are and tries to extract them, how highly it's scored there, because that's an indicator of how likely this is to be a actual conclusion. Because, you know, we extract sentences from papers that are supposed to be the claims based on the evidence. We inherently are going to end up extracting things that aren't that in our background information. But hopefully if our model is good enough, those don't score as well when we extract them. So we take that output of like, what is the percentage chance of this being a claim? And we put that into our weighting as well to try to prioritize things that are likely to be actual conclusions. So we have, we have all of that to get us the top 25 that score the highest. And then outside of that, or inside of that 25, we then just do a full reorder based on a fine-tuned question and answer model uh, that tries to just show you which one of these are answers to the actual question. So like a perfect example of this is like, pretend somebody says, um, what are the benefits of mindfulness? Uh, we might extract a claim that says, these results show that there are benefits of mindfulness. On basic keyword and even more advanced uh, natural language processing similarity scores, that's gonna score really, really highly. And that may be brought down into our top 25. So what we need on that last step is a more advanced system that is a Q&A system that says, yeah, it's super similar. But they just they didn't even say anything. 
they didn't provide an answer to the question. You asked, what are the benefits of mindfulness? And all it said are, there are benefits of mindfulness. So we need a system at the end of it to then resort them and say, where is their actual insights to this question? And then try to deliver you those answers. And then to tie it all together of how that gets better over time. Uh, so to train that final model, we give, uh, we do examples of question and possible answers, and we have scientists uh, rank them and score them and so annotate giant data sets of here's a question, here's a possible answer, how good of an answer is this? Uh, and we just did a giant exercise of retraining that model with uh, anonymized user search data. So we have, you know, we were able, we anonymize all our data. We have no idea who is searching what, but we can see what the questions are. And so we can take all of that data. We can then generate possible results, feed those over to scientists, have them annotate them up and say, this is a good answer. This is not so good answer. And feed that back to our fine tuned Q&A model that then theoretically over time will do a better job of servicing uh, relevant insights and answers. Makes sense. Now, um, one of the features you have at Consensus is the ability to share. Yeah. Um, and I'll explain how that feature works. And then you can tell me if that feeds into the results, like are, are items that are shared more likely to show up in search results in the future? So I, I recently was in Colorado with some friends for a golf trip. And as it happened, we had listened to the recent episode of the Huberman podcast, where he talks about how terrible alcohol is for your health. Yeah, it was and terrifying. The, what was that? It was terrifying. I listened to it too. Oh, uh, yeah. So so we were debating that podcast, and I made the case that maybe his claims were not consensus because there is evidence that there are some, some benefits. And I couldn't really back that up, but the consensus engine is kind of perfect for this because either at dinner or like when you're back from dinner, you can sort of search up health effects of red wine and then get the answers and then uh, email those to friends or what have you. Um, so, so my question is uh, if you do that health effects of red wine, like you're going to get some, some good answers. Um, then you share one of them with your friends does that does that then play into the uh the search results uh so yeah to answer that question first no it does not uh everything i talked about before is how we prioritize search results it has nothing to do with the popularity of a result again we don't want to rely on just because people are clicking on it doesn't mean that it is more likely to be an answer to the question they could be clicking on it because they think it's bogus or some other reason whatever we want to prioritize trying to provide insights to the question uh, but the sharing functionality, yeah, something we're really excited about, something want to give my co-founder, Christian, a ton of credit for really pioneering this is something you think could be an important growth channel for us to start. Um, and yeah, I, I love everything you said, because that kind of argument solver, sitting around a table, talking to friends about a subject and really just wishing in the palm of my hand, I could be like, what does the research actually say about it? That is how I came up with the idea for consensus. And then to tie it even more all together, uh, you know, Hubert, Andrew Huberman, Huberman Lab Podcast is a giant inspiration for us. Uh, we like to say that he is the human version of consensus because he does what we want to do of distilling down research on interesting questions in a consumable way that it can help people and people learn from it. And uh, he is truly incredible at it. Uh, and yeah, lo love that podcast. Uh, but yeah, we think searching is great for that reason. Like, you know, you see somebody saying something on Twitter and now you have the ability to look it up at consensus, reply to a tweet with that finding or that query right in your tweet, share it. People can click on it. You don't even need an account uh, to click on those results and see what they are. Uh, so we think it's a really cool ability for people to interact with each other, share the product, you know, win arguments, uh, insert themselves into debates. So uh, yeah, really excited about that sharing feature. What constraints do uh, copyrights or intellectual property serve for you all? Like, uh, presumably, it's just articles and not books for the reason of copyright. Um, although, I don't know, that might be complicated. I, I remember Google was sort of putting copyrighted material out there in Google Library for a while. Um, so are there certain journals that are like, strongly copyrighted how, how does the, how does the copyright uh constraint assert itself 
Yeah, I, I don't know much about the, the book copywriting system, like the ins and outs of that. Um, but yeah, basically we get all of our data from a data, a research data aggregator uh, called Semantic Scholar. Uh, and they are run out of the Allen Institute for Artificial Intelligence in Seattle, which is Paul Allen, the Microsoft founders, uh, artificial intelligence research organization. And they basically, in the same way Google, Google Scholar aggregates a bunch of journals and research papers, they do this as well. Uh, they prioritize more open access journals. So journals that you could go to uh, and access yourself, regardless if you have a subscription. However, we do have non-open access journals in our database. It's just, if you try to go to the full text from consensus, you will then hit the paywall. So basically we have a license and a partnership with this data aggregator, which gives us access to these papers to run our analysis over. But if you try to go um, and access the full text yourself, you would not be able to, you'd be subject to all of the, or for some of the articles, you'd be subject to the paywalls of those places. The yeah, news I, is that, I experienced that. Yeah, the good news is, is uh, the trend is on our side here. And open access and open science is a movement that has so much steam. Uh, and I don't know if you saw, but there was some legislature uh, about like three or four weeks ago where I forget by, by what date, but by some date in the near future, all scientific papers that have been funded by federal dollars have to be made open access, which is the way that it should have been the whole time. Uh, but there's going to only continue to be more and more open access papers that anybody can access themselves. That's interesting. Yeah. Um, so, so tell me, like, when you're seeking out expertise, when you've got a hard natural language processing problem that you're trying to solve at consensus, yeah, where do you go for that expertise? Where does it exist? Is it in universities? Is it just ex Google employees? Uh, is it consulting companies? Like, where do you go to find the frontier? Yeah, great question. Uh, and it's it's an interesting subject because it's pretty new. And these large language models like GPT-3 are only been around for like single digit years, right? So like it is all, all new. So it, it is not the most straightforward answer to say, where's the expertise here? Um, you know, for us at Consensus, we've been lucky enough to hire an amazing team and our um, our, our two machine learning engineers, one of them, Ali Freed, has a PhD in computer science and in university studied things about natural language processing. So that's kind of, you know, coming from academia angle. And then our other machine learning engineer, Brett Nebaker, um, he actually came from a company that was doing NLP on law documents. So it's actually like an even earlier application of NLP before GPT-3 or anything like that, where they or machines basically look through the text of a law document and try to classify sentences as I believe like privileged or non-privileged material and I'm sure a bunch of other stuff too, but that's the example he used to give us. So he actually learned all of this mostly in industry uh, for an earlier application of NLP. So I'd say the two, yeah, the two places there really is true expertise is at companies that were early adopters of NLP uh, or in university from a more theoretical perspective. And then the other way that at Consensus we get expertise is we've been lucky enough to um, bring on an awesome advisory board, to which one particular guy uh, is the, a true expert in this space. His name's Conrad Cording, and he's a professor at University of Pennsylvania, uh, and he's you know a world leader in, in, in deep learning and, and machine learning. And he actually wrote a paper that was part of the inspiration for consensus. So he wrote a paper about how to extract claims from scientific papers. And that is a lot of the scaffolding that we use to build our first version. Uh, and we reached out to him and we were lucky enough, you know, he has an equity stake in the company and, and helps us with a lot of these problems. And that's a pretty good example of the knowledge coming from academia first, because they were just doing this from like a, a theoretical, not theoretical, they, they did do it, but they were doing it with like a research lens. And then we come about the paper and we take it and try to make it into a product application. From the... Uh... Top-down perspective, if someone came to you and they said, what is the best book or survey article that I could read to get an understanding of modern language processing, where would you point them? 
I wish I had a better answer for that. Uh, I'd want to ask our engineers. They probably would have a way better answer for me. Um, I would say read anything that OpenAI has had their hands on. So they've published scientific articles themselves about GPT-3 and similar things that you can read. And I, I think that, you know, they, they've probably been interviewed in a bunch of articles and maybe written some articles themselves. So I would use that as kind of your anchor point for finding reputable content is find things that uh, OpenAI has had their hands on. And they have a lot of documentation of all these models. You, you know, that, that makes you get into the weeds a little bit more. But uh, if you already have a base layer understanding or feel like you, you, you've read some and then you have, yeah, you, can, you can even look into some of the documentation uh, of all these models and their capabilities. What do you think of the future of uh, journalism? There was some quick uh, Twitter conversation I came upon about a Scientific American article that just came out where uh, AI is supposed to write an article about itself, like AI is writing an article about uh, AI, and it's supposed to be like convincingly human. I didn't get a chance to dive in, so like I can't really say much about it, but uh, it sort of begs the question, in journalism, a lot of what's happening is kind of synthesis of what's out there already, right? Uh, so uh, is the future is the future of journalism AI and machine journalism, machine learning generated text? Uh, there's some companies already, I believe, starting to attack this. Um, and... You know, it's gonna be kind of similar to that like student paper example. Like the the high level answer is like it definitely is would already be able to do this if you gave it the right fine tuning data. How it will actually, you know, so but, but the real limitation of some of this generative GPT three is a generative model. It takes in an input and generates you an output. Uh, and the real limitations of it is, as it stands now, there definitely are gonna be ways to around this in the future. Is it doesn't cite its sources, right? Like what it generates is kind of effectively from thin air. You know, it's what it's learned about. It comes in a principle from what it's learned about, but you don't get to say, you know, if you're writing an article about a given thing and you, you're citing either studies or previous articles or a quote from whatever, like something, if GPT-3 generated you an example, you have no ability to do that. And what it spit out is effectively just from thin air as far as you're concerned. Uh, so I think that's a real limitation in how it would be applied to writing like a rigorous article. But where I think we'll probably see it first is like generating top line summaries uh, for journalists. So like a journalist writes an article, you run GPT-3 and then you have it generate you the most, you know, grabby headline, you know, two sentences that you can like put on the top of your article as a summary. Uh, that would be able to be done like right now. And I'd be shocked if there aren't companies trying to do that. Um, so, there's some limitations for how it could actually write. It definitely can write articles already. Uh, you probably could tell it was written by an AI and you'd have a limited ability to cite sources. So I think those would probably be the two limitations before you know there's just no journalists. Uh, but I'd be shocked if we don't see it uh, doing some tasks for journalists and generative text. Football fans, join the next generation of fantasy football with Rainmakers Football, the first ever NFT fantasy game from DraftKings. It's the only NFT fantasy game licensed by the NFL Players Association. You can play all season for millions in prizes by building the ultimate NFT franchise. Playing Rainmakers is simple. Buy, sell, bid, and win player card NFTs of the biggest names in the game through regular drops and auctions on DraftKings Marketplace. Build your NFT franchise and enter free Rainmakers football contests all season long. You'll be competing for almost 30 million in prizes. Download the DraftKings Fantasy app and sign up with the promo code ADAMS. Click the Rainmakers tile and opt in to get your first card free. You will then be playing for millions in prizes all football season while building the ultimate NFT franchise. That's promo code ADAMS, build, play, and win only at DraftKings. So in terms of uh, finance and sports being sort of frontier, I, I would really think of finance as being... Yeah, the place where this stuff is likely at the frontier, just because the um, timely, extremely rapid digestion of value relevant information is so richly rewarded, right? That I would think that these natural language processing models are already existing somewhere. They're just sort of secret, 
Um, so I'd be curious how how those might might work. Um, I would think that whenever you have an expectation structure that you're dealing with, it's got to get very complicated, right? Because let's just say it's sports and people are really interested in how many rushing attempts is Cam Akers going to get. And they, and they know it's coming right down to the wire and they have to interpret things like, okay, what's happening on the practice field and who's talking to who on the sidelines and like all these conversations that are somewhere in the Twitter sphere or from beat reporters. Um, and you have kind of the expectation structure and then you're evaluating news on the basis of the expectations or to put a finance example on it, you have, I don't know, some fed comments coming out and you have an expectation about what the fed's going to do in the future. And then you're revising that expectation based on the language that's being used. Uh, that must be, yeah, but, but that, that must be like, uh, an extremely complicated problem is, do you think that this is something that people are making progress on, or it's just sort of too complex for machines at this point? Um, I definitely think it's something people are making progress on. Um, you know, I think there's a ton of reasons why financial institutions don't have the capabilities to do this. So my guess would be that this will come from the outside. Uh, so I'll start with the finance example. Um, I think that's a great feature use case. And in a lot of ways has some similarity to what we do at consensus, because, you know, one of the benefits we have at consensus is it's kind of counterintuitive because science is like, you know, super duper complex and whatnot, and there's so much nuance, but the way that these documents are written are extremely structured and that allows for large scale text analysis, right? Like they're written, here's the introduction, here's the methods, here's the, the objectives, here's the results and allows machines like some scaffolding to, to pull out information. Uh, and I'm not a financial expert, but I imagine that, you know, financial white papers or earning statements or fed comments, uh, those documents could have similar qualities where it allows you to kind of play in the sandbox of the structure of documents. And as long as those documents have useful insights and you want them quickly and at scale, I see no reason why you couldn't build something similar uh, for financial documents for financial institutions. Uh, you know, we've talked about that as a future 10, five year, five year vision for a consensus. We're not doing that right now, but uh, in theory, you could do some of the same practices. Um, in sports, yeah, the use case is a little less clear to me. Uh, maybe you could train a, a, a NLP model to read tweets from Schefter or Shams and, uh, you know, try to assess the likelihood of somebody to play based on the sentiment of the tweet that then can inform some DFS or gambling decisions or something. Uh, but yeah, probably a little less clear in, in my eyes for the, for the sports application. Now, um, in terms of sort of personal assistant or whatever the what's necessary is for you to provide feedback to the machine learning model for you to teach it in some way right and it would seem like uh it would seem like personal assistant use would be one where you could provide feedback because for instance down the road if you had let's just say I'm not getting so many emails, but there are people out there getting hundreds of emails per day that they can't possibly respond as a single person. Yeah. Um, if they had the machine reply for them, um, they could presumably teach the machine when they were when the machine was giving a good response versus bad, and then they're learning over time. So, for instance, I. The machine consults your calendar and sees that you're not available. Uh, Brandon is not available on that day. And then you sort of teach, is that a good response or a bad response? Uh, is that a likely application of, of natural language processing in the future? 100%. And the example I'd give to like, to back that up is everyone is pretty familiar with, you know, these new models are, are, are new. They've only been around for single digit years, but NLP has been around for, for quite a bit longer. And an application that almost everyone's familiar with, an application of NLP that's been around for 
uh, you know, decades is chatbots, uh, which effectively what you're talking about is a more advanced chatbot where you go to customer support and, you know, there's a machine talking to you about your problems and then replying to you. Uh, and there's no real that many fundamental differences between that and what you're talking about where it takes in a, a prompt, a question from somebody externally, and it tries to provide uh, a good answer that is you know, correct about the source material. So you're on DraftKings and you go to, you type in a customer support ticket, there's an automated system. It's like, what, is, what, what can I help you with today? Then the user types something in and then given what they said, it will provide you with a response to that. Uh, and that's effectively the same thing as like, you know, a personal assistant that would be replying to emails. And when you're giving feedback to the machines, is it is it really just yes, no? Is it like like when when you're getting results for a consensus search, is, is it really just yes, no, this is not what I want, yes? Like is is it just the yes, no, or is the feedback more complicated than that? Yeah, good question. Um, it can be more complicated than that. And it just depends on the task you're doing. If your task can be boiled down to a yes, no, then being able to provide it with just a binary uh, outcome, will you'll get the best accuracy. Problem is not all tasks can be boiled down to a yes, no. And even a task like ours that is question answer, we wanted to have a little more nuance on there that gives it an ability to like write it as like a, a little more scalar system where it's not just this is good, this is bad because there's a lot of nuance to it. Like it could be, totally relevant, but just like slightly adjacent question. Like we want that to be shown differently to our model than something that's just completely irrelevant. Uh, so there is tons of ability to make these input systems more complex. And in the, the as like these examples we're giving about like prompts in generation. So you can think of the copywriting example I gave or this email example I gave. Uh, the way you would train those models isn't by giving it like yes, no, this is what you should do, this is what you shouldn't do. It's giving it examples just of what it should do, of you, you basically feed the model, here is prompt, here is what we want you to say. And you give it thousands of different examples of that. And so it's actually learning from response pairs and how to formulate response pairs as opposed to just like thumbs up, thumbs down. Does that make sense? Yeah. Um... Now, how did you all settle on one sentence as sort of the the abstract from a journal article? One, the one sentence summary. Yeah. And is that something that is a a changeable thing? Like, is it? Yeah. Let's say let's say you got a massive sort of VC round uh, tomorrow, and they said, "Okay, just one thing, Eric." Like we need to have three sentences for each paper. And unless you can come up with an amazing reason why it's not three sentences, is that something that could change really quickly or um, is it sort of just one sentence as yeah. crucial to the, to the construction? So uh, yeah, an important point here about what we do is that I've talked a lot about GPT-3 and generation. Uh, we actually don't generate the text. We extract the text. And we think that's really important for our use case because we want to make sure we're delivering uh, correct information that represents what the scientists are saying. And if you take in a bunch of text and try to spit out just one sentence, there is still a lot of room for generative models to pervert the meaning. And when you're dealing with things that have consequences like the results of scientific studies, uh, we wanted to extract the sentences and not actually generate them. And that is kind of the answer for the single sentence. Uh, is we want to try to preserve all the meaning of what the scientists are saying. So allowing us to work in these sentence units uh, give, uh, is the best road to, to delivering those type of results. Uh, however, there is, you know, we're working on things right now to add additional context to the sentences where they're not, you know, sometimes you can write a sentence and it doesn't make sense on its own. We want to be able to pull in other information from the paper and, and tag it onto the sentence for it to make sense. And in theory, you could build that out even more and have it be multi-sentence. Uh, like you're saying, if we wanted to make our, our results be multiple sentences, we could do something like that. But we're trying as best we can to do as little of generation as possible. Uh, for the exact reason that I talked about 
when you asked me that journalist question of the limitation being uh, the citing of the source. You know, we want to be able to attach these sentences to where they came from and keep the meaning of what they're saying to say, here's what this author said from this paper, and here is that sentence, and here is that paper. That's really important to what we're doing. So again, we want to, we want to as much as we can, stay away from abstractive generation. That makes sense. But yet, like the next generation of machine learning would be like a more advanced form of synthesis. What's that? Where you generate and it's GPT-3 cites its sources. How cool that is. Yeah. Oh, you. so explain, explain how that would work. Don't know exactly. This doesn't exist yet, but uh, you in theory could try to train a specific type, uh, uh, a fine-tuned version of GPT-3 that is both like extractive and abstractive, where it could extract things from a few papers and then generate a summary across those papers and into like a one sentence and then have it also spit out, here are the five papers that I generated this from. So effectively, it is GPT-3 citing its own sources. Right. Right. And then kind of the next generation from that would be um, a lot of the questions you're asking. It's sort of like you're, you're asking for a consensus coefficient, if you will. So if I'm asking it, what is the relationship between money supply and inflation? I'm sort of asking a empirical question about coefficients yeah. and it could kind of Synthesize. Yeah, be able to say, all right, you know, five percent increase on average generates this change in inflation three years from now, or something. And and health a lot of times is also kind of risk coefficients, right? Uh, non-smoker versus smoker in terms of cancer risk five years down the road, drinker versus non-drinker, exercise versus non-exercise. Like it's a lot about coefficient estimates and the consensus that you're interested in is like, what is the, yeah. what is the coefficient? A hundred percent. This is actually uh, what we pitched as our initial vision. Uh, and this is what we want to work toward is a, a synthesis across papers. Uh, we want it to still be tied to these, uh, you know, being able to cite where they came from. So you can always access the source material, but the, you know, the name of our company is consensus for a reason. Right. Uh, we want to eventually get to multi-paper synthesis where uh, you can type in yeah, a question like that and it will say, like, here's seven papers that the average of the responses was 5% increase in money supply or whatever. Uh, that is what we want to get to. It's a, you know extremely difficult machine learning problem. We know how we want to attack it uh, and we're actively working on it. Now, maybe you could explain uh, a little bit more about the consensus model as a company before we go. Um, I'm particularly interested in the the business side of it. There's no revenue model, seemingly. Uh, you can play around with the with the product, and it's it's sort of like, wow, my life is better for this existing. But uh, how am I going to channel some money to them? Yeah, uh, no, great question. Uh, so yeah, for everyone out there. If you go to consensus.app, you can create a free account and start searching right away. Uh, and our model you know, for the future is going to be a freemium subscription model. Uh, so we want to be able to give people some free access to the product. Exactly how we you know, divvy out the paywall versus not is still kind of TBD. Our focus right now is, is getting out there and growing and getting in the hands of users and getting a bunch of feedback and making the product better. And then when we feel it's time, uh, we'll put a paywall somewhere. Uh, hopefully what you use now will always be free and it will be the premium features that we create in the future that will be paywalled. Uh, but there's also a world where we do some, you know, usage based, you have three free queries and the, after that you pay us, don't hold me to these numbers. I, I'm making them up. You pay us $7.99 a month for a subscription to consensus. And again, going back to talking about Google, um, we think that it is impossible for a company like us to exist with an advertising based model. Um, you know, I know our ethics at our heart and I know we want to do this the right way and deliver the good information, but, uh, incentives run the world. And as much as I say, I want to do the right thing. If my company is set up in a way 
uh, where my, you know, I make the most money by keeping people the most engaged and keeping them clicking, then I won't build the version of consensus that needs to be built. Uh, we need to be incentivized to deliver you the correct and good information, not incentivized to keep you engaged in the product. So we will never do, we will never operate as an advertising based business. And we think we have to be a subscription uh, revenue model. I love it. Eric, thanks so much for the time. This has been great. Yeah, it's been a ton of fun. Thank you so much for having me, Brandon.